From the hills of central New York and the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is a frequent guest on Frankly Speaking, Dr. Jim Brosnan, professor of weed science from the University of Tennessee, an avid New England sports fan, but we are not going to be going there in this conversation, especially this year. Jim is a leading thinker and voice in the weed science community, traveling the world speaking, leading multi-million dollar national research programs, and supporting the industry around herbicide use and managing herbicide resistance. I can't wait to get this conversation started. But before we do, Jim has led a multi-year effort studying annual bluegrass, and certainly nutrient management is critical for effective management or exclusion. Your partners at the Plant Food Company have nutrient products to meet all your needs when balancing plant health and playability. Learn more at plantfoodco.com. Welcome to Frankly Speaking. I've got my old pal Jim Brosnan from the University of Tennessee with me today, and we are just going to wander through a number of very interesting topics, Jim. And I will say, it was nice to see you really enjoying uh, your trip down to Australia. That's where I want to start our conversation because it's what brought you back into my consciousness. Not that I don't love you or anything like that, being a longtime guest on the show. But seeing you down there, and I know how important weed control and turf management is in that area, much like it is in some places where you live now. Can you talk a little bit about the trip down under? Was it your first? Did the travel go well? And then I want to get into sort of the nuances of weed control down under. Yeah, sure. And, and and thanks again for having me on, Frank. I know with my Boston sports teams having trouble <laughs> these days, you know, it gives us less and less to chop back and forth about. That's and exactly I, commend, right. I commend you for your discipline and not rubbing it in my face all the time <laughs> that the Pats are three and 10, but we'll leave that there because this could become a whole nother podcast. But no, it was a, it was an awesome trip. I mean, a, a trip of a lifetime. And I can't thank the Australian sports turf managers group enough for having me over. And I was fortunate enough to bring my whole family with me and we didn't have a single travel delay of any kind, no bag issues. I mean, it it just went beautifully. That's so great, especially bringing the family along, right? Yeah, and it was my my 11-year-old daughter's first overseas flight. And we we had a lot of inter-country flights too, because the Mm -hmm. advice I got was, if you're going to go over there, you should see some of the country. So we spent some time going all the way up to the northern part of the country. Oh, wow. uh, To Port Douglas and out on the Great Barrier Reef and then down into Victoria. And I was fortunate enough to spend a day with Richard Forsyth at Royal Melbourne. He couldn't have been a, a kinder host for me. Just and the best guy, right? That place. Oh. Incredible. Right. And honestly, Frank, you know, I and I told Richard this that day that I felt like I was looking at the future in yeah. terms of POA control in my region because mm-hmm. they have just as many resistance issues in Australia as we do and fewer and fewer chemistries. And what Richard has kind of leaned into is that our job is to prepare a surface for play, to have the ball interact with the surface in a certain way. And the day I visited, there was POA in those fairways, but it had a zero percent impact on playability. And with his other agronomic practice practices kind of dialed in, it wasn't very noticeable either. I mean, he should be commended for how he's navigated through the issue. And I think it's a direction that we're moving to. Yeah. Well, and let me second that about Richard on every level. Couldn't be a nicer guy. That collection of golf courses in the sand belt is by far my favorite collection of golf courses in the world. And there's a lot of golf courses that I've walked on. And when you walk on those surfaces, you can almost feel the 500 feet sand beneath your feet when you're doing it. And he 
he can get that place and he certainly learned how to manage that place in a way that's providing those conditions. When the pros go there, I don't think they think there's a better surface they ever play on when they play on that. But you bring up a really good point, exactly where I wanted to go next, seeing as you didn't have any travel problems for us to talk about, which are always sort of fun to keep us busy on the ridiculousness of trying to get from here to Knoxville, never mind from Knoxville to Australia. When those guys are looking at weed control, Australia, as I know it from my time interacting with Steve Powell's and your sort of long work and me following it, is really an epicenter for a lot of resistance. Are they struggling under the same issues we are in that the breadth and depth of resistance is expanding? Certainly, and definitely hungry for information. And, you know, one of the takeaways from the trip for me, too, and I, it's funny, I, at the end of the semester, I meet with my whole lab, and we have a tradition that everybody who works for me reads this book, Essentialism, by Greg McEwen. Yep. And there's an exercise in there, like, within all the chaos of life to kind of drill down on the things that are most important. And the task that I give everybody who works for me is, look, we do hundreds of trials every year, and there are thousands of treatments that we put out with different target weeds and different active ingredients and and just different interventions. Think through across everything we did what are the things that you learned this year that like stick out the most, that are most important above all of that kind of chaos? And one of the things on my list when I met with a group was that the information that's generated, it just goes a long way. There were so many people on the other side of the world that were familiar with the work that our lab has done here and, and my colleagues in the Southeast that were part of the National POA project that those labs had done. It was a good reminder for me that the data that's generated can help a lot of people. And I think it's good for the students to know that, too, because they get kind of laser focused on their project for their degree. And I think it's important for them to realize that the reach is a little bit wider than they might originally. Yeah, and, and of course, that you bring it up. I mean, when you just think about that part of the world, a lot of our foundation that you built on with the team with the Resist POA project was built on Mary Lush's work, who was an Australian, I believe, mm-hmm. And so there's that transfer of information has always been critical. Now, are you seeing down under some of the constraints we're facing potentially with no new active ingredients being introduced? Do they have a wider suite of products or... As you intimated in your comment about Richard Forsyth's place, are we just going to have to learn to live with it and manage it in place? By no stretch do they have more herbicide options than we do. I would say they have fewer. You know, anybody who works in weed science would tell you that there are things being researched right now that are truly new, that show promise, but that's a long road to get through the regulatory channels to be launched and used in turf in the U.S. And then you put it that in different countries, it's an even longer journey. So I don't think anybody's hedging their bets on the next novel herbicide to come down the road and cure all their problems. And they shouldn't be, right? You know, you and I have talked before that the cure to resistance doesn't really come from a jug. And and I think they've really embraced that. I mean, I've gotten to a point, Frank, now that in talks that I give, not only over there, but but here in the U.S., that I'll sit down with any golf course superintendent that wants to talk about their POA program. And we can go through any AI you want to talk to in whatever combination you want to explore. And there's going to be utility there. and, And it might move the needle forward in a positive direction for a year or two years. But at the end of the day, for me, if you want to move a POA problem in warm season turf, and make the biggest impact, the biggest impact is phrase mowing. 
And there's there's really no other <laughs> argument. I that. can't even believe I'm hearing you say that. What I thought was a completely crazy idea that we played around with up here, phrasing off the meadow areas at the Vineyard Golf Club and harvesting all the crabgrass seed and saying, wow, you had less crabgrass after you shaved it off. Uh, you guys have found similar things, or they, the Australians, are really embracing that. Yeah, and it's not just them, Frank. I mean, I, I worked with the club this summer that phrase mowed 36 acres of Bermuda grass fairways. Wow. What did they dig a hole to bury the stuff? Uh, they had a pretty fortunate situation that the footprint of the golf course was huge. So they had the ability to discard the spoils in kind of wooded areas that were not in the golf course corridors. Right. But it was a resistance-driven decision, and it has certainly helped them. And I, in, in working with that superintendent since that project concluded in July, you know, he shared with me that they don't see any poa in the fairways right now, and he can go out into the woods where they scattered the spoils, and you can see the poa germinating in those debris piles. Yeah, and I've had the pleasure of walking on Whisper Rock Golf Club with Ryan Mahar a few times Mm -hmm. uh, down in the North Scottsdale area. And and for those that, you know, will be lucky maybe to be able to go near some of these courses when we're down there in February. Mark Woodward was the former superintendent there, and he phrase mowed all those fairways, and they dug a hole and, and buried the stuff. So for those listening, the spoils remain one of the chronic issues there for sure. But it's very funny. I think it's been seven or eight years since then, and Ryan can still identify the places where the phrase mower missed, and there's a couple of very small triangles of POA. So what does this tell you about the importance of the seed bank and managing that seed bank, which heretofore is something we only did with pre-emergent herbicides. You're saying trying to reduce the inoculum, so to speak, as maybe Brandon Horvath would talk to you about when it comes to a pathogen. Is that really fundamentally lying at the heart of what we're facing here with some of these resistance issues? Yeah, I, I think that's a huge part of it, Frank. And I think the other piece, and I can't believe it's taken this long in my career for these dots to connect for me, but sometimes I'm not the quickest person in the world. But, you know, I was on an airplane flying from somewhere back to Knoxville and, you know, just thinking about this topic. And, you know, we all learned when we went through school that the number one defense against any weed is plant competition. But in Bermuda grass fairways, particularly in my climate and in most of the points south of here until you get into deeper parts of Florida, for example. Tropical. Yeah. You don't have plant competition for multiple months of the year. And those months of the year just happen to be the months where the POA, the target weed that you're trying to go after, is the most active, right? So all of the pressure is on the herbicide alone. The parallel I like to talk about is that's like a farmer taking a field, not planting any crops on it, and wanting to keep that field clean. And think about the pressure that would be on the herbicide program to do that. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, you basically, you're a one-trick pony at that stage of the game. Right. So for me, this is just introducing another tool into the system. It's not plant competition per se. I mean, you could make an argument that a summer phrase mowing event is going to make the desirable turf more competitive. And I think there's some merit in that, you know, working with clubs that have done this, whether it's the the one facility I know that did this on fairways, as well as those that have done this, say, for collars, for example, to remove collar dams. You know, I think one of the ways superintendents can look at this is the price tag is high, right? The cost of doing this is going to be higher than any herbicide program you might put together. But when you start to think about the cost of the herbicide program and then the deliverable after phrase mowing from a a firmness standpoint, I would argue, is going to be equal to, if not maybe a little better, than a regular vertical mowing program and sand top dressing. 
So if you think about for fairways, like if you added up the cost of what it would be to implement vertical mowing and debris removal on fairways, if you weren't already doing it, plus a fairway top dressing program, then a POA program, I think that price tag gets pretty close to what the price tag of a phrase mowing treatment would be in, in fairway turf. And I think it's easier to settle the numbers when it's approached as not only a, a weed management intervention, but all the other cultural agronomic benefits that'll come along with it. Okay. So we've already wandered into some ground I want to cover. And we're going to do that after I ask you this question, and then we'll take a break. You mentioned at the beginning that Richard has learned to live with it. Phrase mowing is a dramatic thing. And I agree with you. There is a rejuvenating effect that occurs in the stand. Mike Goatley has talked to me about this in the past as well. There's a rejuvenating effect, especially in the warm season grasses. I don't know about zoysia as much. You'd have to tell me. I know you've played around with that as well. But I know that the Bermuda grass can really be invigorated. Many of the superintendents, I think Jordan DePippo did it out at Bel Air as well, a couple mm-hmm. of fairways and had some really good success out there. But on the other end, you're saying Richard is learning to live with it. Are you worried about living with it, that it will expand to the point where we won't be able to live with it? I'm really not, because I think if we look at what our jobs are, it's not to provide monocultures, right? It's to prepare golf course surfaces for play. And there's high-level golf course surfaces that can have multiple species in them. You know, I I think that's a critical kind of paradigm shift that hasn't been had yet, at least in in my part of the world. I mean, you you look at golf courses in your region, Frank, there are plenty of high-level properties that have POA as part of what they're managing, and they host major championships. So I think this is kind of newer for the warm season world, but as I start to work with clubs that have POA populations that are resistant to four or five modes of action, and maybe they don't have the palate or the budget to undertake a, a phrase mowing operation, it's really hard pressed to think about spraying your way out of that issue. And, you know, I think another thing that's important here is if we took a long view arc of fairway management, I think it tells us a story about why POA has become more problematic in fairways too. And what I mean by that is like, if you look at Poe and putting greens, well, that wasn't planted, right? That mm-hmm. was a weedy infestation. And then as putting green management has intensified with lower heights of cut and more fungicide interventions, better irrigation scheduling, we see these plants perpetuate and become more part of the canopy. And, you know, Dave Hupp's lab at Penn State has done a really nice piece of research showing how mowing kind of mm-hmm. affects the epigenetics of those plants and, and keeps them in that state, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. You start to look at fairways. Well, look at what we mow fairways at now compared to maybe pick up a green section record from yeah. 1979 or 1980. Yeah. Well, we've dramatically reduced fairway yeah. mowing heights. Yeah. We're now using growth regulators on fairways, something we didn't do before. We've kind of gone down the same road. I mean, I can make a case visiting some clubs that are managing fairways that are what greens might have been around the time that 100%. I was born. And then we get surprised that Poe is more of a permanent part of the canopy <laughs> and harder to control. I kind of think like the nature of what we've done where the game has taken us has kind of led us and resistance is part of that too. But I just think the modern iteration of what we do to prepare a golf course is going to set up the poet to be more a part of what we manage. Ah. Dr. Jim Brosnan's with me here on Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi. We'll be right back. Managing soil physical properties remains the linchpin in managing annual bluegrass and a firm, fast playing surface. Sand-based systems need to be firm and permeable. The pros at DryJack Services have the expertise and equipment to meet your soil amending, top dressing, and aerating needs with one pass. Contact your local DryJack representative for more information or visit dryjack.com. 
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm in a real deep dive with Dr. Jim Brosnan as we usually wind up. And somewhere eventually we're going to get back to Poe, Jim. But before I do, you were a senior author on a really interesting paper just sort of characterizing the species we use on golf course putting greens. Mm -hmm. Now, everybody that's looked at this paper said, wait, we don't know this? (laughs) You know what I mean? This is one of those examples like, oh, shoot, I thought we would have known this already. And certainly while we know it intuitively, maybe we think we know it on some level, you guys went out and did a really interesting survey. Can you talk a little bit about what you found when you surveyed golf course putting green species? Sure. And and I'll give you the backstory of where that whole project originated. So here at UT, we were putting together an extension publication on weed management on ultra dwarf putting greens because that was something that our extension library, we didn't have a, any good resource on that. So worked on this pub and my extension assistant and I said, you know, it'd be really nice to have a map that shows kind of where ultra dwarf putting greens are grown. And we searched pretty far to get a map and we couldn't find one. So I called Brian Schwartz, the turfgrass breeder at Georgia, and I said, hey, if anybody's going to have a map on this, you're going to have a map. And he said, honestly, I've never seen one before. And he called me back about a week later. He said, what'd you think about doing a project where we try to generate the map? And I said, great, let's do it. And I need to give Brian and Jason Peak at the University of Georgia a lot of credit. I mean, they were the engine of that project in terms of creating the survey instrument, really pushing things out. And- Brian was a recent guest on the show, and, and a lot of people commented on what a lovely conversation we had about Bermuda grass types. And he really took us through a glorious history and future of modern Bermuda grasses and even a little bit about the new zoysias that are out there. Brian is as good a scientist uh, as we have uh, in that area for sure. And, and yeah. just as solid and as humble a guy as you'll, you'll meet. Yeah, no, awesome guy. And, you know, we, we, we did this and we pushed it out. And thanks to all the superintendents that filled it out. I mean, we pushed it out to as many GCSAA chapters as we could. And you can see in the paper, the, the biggest takeaway for me, Frank, was how far south the bent grasses were. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of did not expect to see, you can get in there and see bent grasses throughout Texas mm-hmm. and even into parts of Arizona. And I've worked with some clubs out in Arizona that are bent grass on putting greens. And mm-hmm. I think it speaks to the advancements that have been made in the bent grass germplasm over time. I know one of your previous episodes, I think you might've had Emily Brathwaite from Oregon State on yeah. and talking about the the modern iteration of bent grasses and how the, the heat tolerance is so improved. And yeah. I mean, you're seeing that. I mean, Richard Buckley from Rutgers is, feels like he posts every day a new place and a place that you wouldn't think would grow bent grass that is growing one of the new super and to me, that's a real emerging trend of where things might be moving with the new bent grasses that are out there. Which is so interesting, right? Because at the same time, you know, you see courses also flipping to the ultra dwarfs, right? And there are, I mean, I was just in the Coachella Valley where it gets 120 mm-hmm. in the summer months, right? And and there were still a few holdout bent grass joints there. I think that's interesting that you learned that because I would have thought intuitively exactly the opposite that you would have seen Bermuda grasses moving further north than bent grasses moving further south. Because I got to tell you, that's a fool's errand, wouldn't you say? I don't know, Frank. I mean, I, I will contend that the way the climate is evolving, I have a lot of reservations about Bermuda grasses moving north. I mean, yeah. I can I can hear an argument out that Knoxville is even a little bit too far north. Yeah. With the ebbs and flows of warming and freezing in springtime, like that's not going to be good for those warm season grasses. And we saw evidence of this even last year. 
I've just been very impressed with the heat tolerance of the new bank grasses. And if I think, if I sit here and I look at the industry today, where we are in 2024, we've never had better fungicide technology. We've never had better ability to control irrigation. We have better germplasm in terms of heat tolerance than we've had before. I mean, I think there's a strong case to be made for bank grass use, much stronger than it was maybe when the wheel of ultra dwarf conversion was really spinning. And and I think some of the folks that have went down that road now, or I think we've learned some, you know, you, mm. you talk to folks like Jim Kearns at NC State and maybe it was a year ago, I think his research associate Lee Butler posted two slides on Twitter and it was sample submissions into their lab, yeah. disease sample submissions yeah. over a 10 year arc. Yeah. And the bank grass samples are very predictable. Yeah. And the ultra dwarf samples are a complete shotgun oh, blast. Oh, they, they are. And especially because they're getting a lot of root pathogens as well that are getting harder and harder for the, those guys to figure out. Now, what I think is interesting, Jim, I couldn't agree with you more. I want to see the expansion of bent grass. I think it, that line that moves up and down, whether it's ultra dwarf or bent, I think we'll continue to debate that for a really long time. And I think that's why your colleague, John Sorokin, has had some success with zoysia putting greens in some cases, because maybe they're potentially a, a more viable option. But I thought was interesting. I tell people I think bent grass is an option in the North is because of POA cure. So let's go back to the POA project again. Now that you guys are well into this project, maybe it's wrapping up. Can you give us a where you are right now with the USDA, SCRI, Resist POA project that you've been a part of all these years? Yeah, I sure can. So it's officially wrapped up. And actually, my new colleague at Tennessee, Dr. Becky Bowling, actually clicked submit on Friday of last week on a new proposal. I don't want to say a continuation because it's not a continuation, but it's a it's a continued effort by the same research team to expand on what we learned in the in the first project on POA to a, a wider audience. Uh, good. So now, hot off the press, since the push button was just made, can you give us a little insight? Because what I was going to ask you was, you know, what did you learn and where are you going? But since you sort of have already done this, you can give me the answer sort of to the bold things at the same time. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, for me, I, I look back at the first POA project and I think one of the biggest things that it did, it documented the size and scope of the problem. That was really important. We had state reports, we had them in Tennessee, and I think there are a few others about the extent of the problem and maybe just in golf in a state. But it went through and it documented the size and scope of the problem across all turf sectors nationally. That was important. There's been some really cool genetics work that's been done, not by our group, but mainly by Scott McElroy's group at Auburn. And, and that's certainly interesting from an academic standpoint to better understand things at that level. I think for me, probably the coolest thing that came out of the project is it just funded a lot of work that never would have been funded. Right. The phrase mowing work that our lab collaborated with the University of Florida on, I mean, that's work that's hard to fund, as you know. And some of the work that Matt Elmore's lab did in collaboration with Alec Koweski at Oregon State, looking at phosphorus programs, interacting with pH and irrigation for POA control and bent grass. I mean, that's work that's hard to fund that probably wouldn't have been done. So right. that was a really important kind of takeaway from that. And the biggest one, though, in terms of what we learned, there's just so many knowledge gaps. Right. Yeah. There are knowledge gaps amongst the practitioners about this problem. I mean, those who have experienced it directly certainly are well aware of how little fun it is. But there's just knowledge gaps with the practitioners about the issue. And there's also some knowledge gaps with the regulators about the issue. And we see that as herbicides go through the re-reg process where 
you know, we have to speak up as a discipline and remind them about some of the resistance issues that we have in turf and how taking a tool away from the turf community is removing a mode of action that we use for resistance management. So this new proposal that Dr. Bowling is leading hopes to kind of build on that knowledge gap piece and really try to generate data that fills those knowledge gaps so that when herbicides go through that RUI regulatory queue, the, the people who need to access that data can find that data in one place in a concise format to make an informed, educated decision. Okay. So this is spectacular, right? And this is the thing we often talk about research that is hard to communicate. There's a lot of what I call mulling and researching and grinding and reading and interpreting and synthesizing and then getting it out to people to maybe think about integrating it into their management. And so you're saying basically a lot of the takeaways was just said, okay, we think we got our arms around this thing now (laughs) to a certain extent. Were you able to prioritize those gaps, not just in knowledge, but the things that we should be studying and addressing that in this new proposal? And what were some of those priorities, Jim, that you guys identified? Yeah, I think the regulatory piece is one. And the fact that an AI, you know, you earlier might have mentioned oxidiazon or Ronstar. When you, you look at these things going through the channels and often the information that's used to make the decisions doesn't come from a turfgrass system. It's borrowed from a commodity ag system. And, and there's just not a whole lot of data to really support how these molecules interact in turf management systems. And that's by far and away priority number one, to try to get data into one usable place that will help the regulatory bodies make an informed decision. Because we know that the the re-reg process is very important and it's going to continue. And we want to make sure that the people who are going to make that decision have as much good scientifically based information about weed management and turf grasses they can get their hands on rather than having to make inference based on something that might be done in cotton or corn and apply that to what might be in a a golf course fairway or a high school football field. Okay, so for sure, it's sort of supporting the regulatory environment so that it's well-informed when decisions are being made. Not that I want to geek out totally, but I did think the work that McElroy's lab was doing, and this was fascinating from an academic perspective, but do you see any application of this work in telling us how severe and widespread the problem could potentially become as we have maybe fewer and fewer tools moving forward? Is some of this academic work maybe not as clear now, but it will help us at least monitor at a very fine level the evolution of the problem? Uh, And you're asking that question specific to POA or as part of this new proposal that's been submitted? Because the new work that's been submitted isn't really specific to any particular target weed at this point. It's more wider reaching because to me, that was a takeaway from the first project is that we put all of our focus on POA and rightfully so. But the knowledge gaps that we observe pertain to things much wider than POA. So do you imagine us having to do more seed bank? assessments moving forward? Are we going to, you know, every year the WSSA does that troublesome and difficult Mm -hmm. to control weed survey. Do you imagine to get your arms around the broader scope of weed control in turf, you're going to have to do some of that sort of ecological stuff or, or will you be able to rely on things like iNaturalist uh, in some ways? Not all of those things are in turf settings. So I'm wondering how you're going to go about proposing to sort of get your arms around the sort of scope of the problem. Yeah, I, some of this, I think, is an exercise in viewpoint, maybe, let's say, that I'm one who, and Matt Elmore and I, are, we're going to do a four-hour workshop on this at the golf show in Phoenix, mm-hmm. that 
I look at pole control in your part of the world, Frank, and I think what's done in the north and cool season turf systems, that's where we're headed in, in warm season turf. And, and you know, there, there's no there's no knockout punch silver bullet no. for POA management and cool season turf, POA cure included in that list. Mm-hmm. And this is Matt's phrase he came up with, and I really like it. It's kind of a game of a million little hammers, right? right. Like you can hit it with one hammer and then a different hammer and a different hammer, and it just kind of is this slow progression. And we've had the luxury in warm season turf for a long time that we had really big, really powerful hammers, right? Mm-hmm. And now they're not doing what we want to do anymore. And I believe this is going to be more of an exercise of maybe approaching that northern mindset to how we set up a program that the herbicides we have left can be part of that. But there are going to be agronomic things, be they mechanical weed control interventions or a better understanding of nutrient management in the profile, pH in the profile, irrigation frequency, traffic management, all that kind of stuff that's not nearly as exciting as the fancy new herbicide <laughs> and the shiny jug. That's going to become more and more important. You know, I have a grad student right now, Maureen Kehu. She's working on her PhD at Tennessee. and. Yeah. She's out sampling putting greens across our state, sampling Bermuda grass greens and bent grass greens and trying to follow up on some of the work that your former student, Dr. Michael Woods, did for his PhD at Cornell. And Frank, we're seeing phosphorus values in the root zone that are 5X MLSN right now as the median. (laughs) And, you know, you you have to back up and go, okay, well, Poe is really, really hard to control and you're doing it in an environment where the root zone is an absolute bathtub that is just set up to be a spa. Matt Elmore, actually, I chatted with him back and forth on email, and I think he recently is publishing a paper uh, on phosphorus stuff and its effect on annual bluegrass colonization and expansion. I think I might have even reviewed a paper. Yeah, I count 10, Frank. I reviewed that paper. That might have been the best paper I've ever reviewed in my career. It was really good. I mean, I yeah. absolutely loved it, especially, you know, it. I remember when Matt was contacting me about phosphorus and POA, I was like, well, man, we're going to dust it off. I'm going to send you some work from the 60s and 70s, and he was, uh, I think, really appreciative of the broader perspective. But listen, I'm with Dr. Jim Brosnan. This is Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi. We'll be right back. Herbicide application requires a high level of precision. And as herbicide use comes under scrutiny, understanding the use of GPS-guided spray technology will make adapting to restrictions easier by reducing product use, but still meeting your weed control needs. Ken Rost and the pros at Frost Spray Technology can guide you through the process. Learn more about GPS technology from a sprayer company that specializes in it at frostserve.com. That's frostserv.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here, and I am, as usual, having one of my favorite conversations when I do episodes as a weed scientist at heart with a fellow weed scientist here, Dr. Jim Brosnan from the University of Tennessee. Jim, I saw something come across my desk the other day. I I think the EPA and then I think the uh, lobbying arms of the various industries we get involved in also came out with something. I think there's a comment period underway for the active ingredient, AI, as we're talking about in this conversation, Ronstar or Oxidiazon, is Oxidiazon the active ingredient, Ronstar, one of the many trade names for it, is going to be restricted to about, I think it said 30% on golf courses of available acreage for treating. Let's deconstruct this a little bit just first in, in spirit and say it looks like 
oxidiazon as a molecule is going through something that somebody is making a decision that its use is going to be restricted. And the easiest way to do that is to restrict the acreage. You can also do it by cumulative amount. You can also do it by number of applications. What do you read on this particular issue with oxidizon? Because as you and I know, goosegrass is one that's not going to be easy, particularly as it continues to move north. As Matt Elmore, the guy we were just chatting about and your former graduate student, has articulated very well that that this is going to be a problem for us that's going to be coming in the north moving forward. What do you read on the oxidizon comment restriction stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's been a journey and need to shout out Hava McKeel with GCSAA and their government relations group. I mean, she did a wonderful job representing the entire golf course superintendent membership in the room with EPA. Also need to kind of tip the cap to Frank Wong with Bear. He kind of rallied the academic weed science community, particularly in the region where Ron Starr is used most readily, which is my part of the world. And, you know, we submitted a joint letter. I think we had 14 or 15 scientists on the letter. And, and, you know, going back to something we talked about earlier, one of the key pieces in, in our messaging to the EPA was this is a really important resistance management tool. It's a group 14 product. We don't have too many of those in turf grass right now. And if we take away a group 14, when we have lots of group threes and lots of resistance to group threes, then that's kind of unfortunate and is going to be really difficult. And, you know, I've heard a lot of vocal feedback on the Ron Star decision that was made. And I, I do think it's important to remind people that it might not be the ideal situation for most, but compared to where we started, it's a tremendous win. Okay. I mean, we started with a place where it was completely gone and then it was going to be fairways only. So if you're one who was using, say, Anderson's Crab and Goose on putting greens, that was not going to be a product for you anymore. If you were using Ronstar on tees, that wasn't going to be a product for you anymore. If you were using any granular Ronstar in other parts of the golf course, that wouldn't be something for you anymore. So the sports turf community was going to lose it hard stop completely. And that was a huge negative when we think about Ronstar not as a pre that doesn't inhibit rooting. That was a huge thing. And then when you think about warm season turf grass growing, right? If we're going to establish something from sprigs, well, our traditional group three dinitroanilins or what have you, where we can't sprig into those, that was going to really compromise sprig and sprig establishment. That has issues not only on a use site, whether that's a golf course or a sports field, that has issues on a sod farm as we're, we're growing sod for production. So where we landed with a sports turf can continue to use the product, sod can continue to use the product, obviously with some guardrails put in place. And then for a golf course superintendent to have the ability to customize how they use it across the property, that to me is a, is a win in the larger context. This is very interesting, Jim. So you were at the epicenter of this conversation. Is this what's going to keep happening with every product that comes along and needs re-registering? I mean, Obviously, this was part of, I'm imagining, a re-registration. Is that correct? Yeah, and and I think it's important for everybody listening to know that all products get re-registered on a regular cycle. That's exactly right. That's why I'm asking, because I think if they don't know, everybody should know. They're looking at these things all the time. I mean, I think we just had this conversation recently with diophanate methyl, which, of course, raises a lot of concerns for those that treat fairways for diseases where worms are also issues, right? So you're saying when you guys sat down, It was possible I couldn't buy the Anderson, Scott's Goose, and Grab Control anymore for my putting green applications. That's correct. That's where it started. And, you know, and to the point about knowledge gaps, and to be fair, there's two things here that are important. One, that if you're listening to this and this has affected you, 
membership in a society, whether that's GCSAA or a chapter or what have you, like this is what your membership dollar went to do. I mean, they are in the room trying to get the best people in the country that know the most about this to have an educated conversation on these topics. The other thing I think that's important here is that if there's an opportunity for letter writing, don't just assume that your chapter is going to write a letter because your letters get read. I say this, hand up, I did not think the letter that I wrote would get read. And it was read, it was quote, it was in the final decision packet that was released by the EPA. And that? that was kind of rewarding to me that somebody read it and, and the points were taken to heart. And I know that they view letters from individual stakeholders very, very highly, more so than kind of a, a boilerplate form letter from a, a chapter or an association. So that's an, that's an important message. I, I agree 100%. And I've had Hava on this show many times. And I always say she's one of the smartest people in that building and certainly the smartest golf person in Washington. When she goes there, she knows how to sort of manage the relationships and articulate the information that is both advocating for a position, but recognizing the context that she operates in. She's absolutely a a brilliant operator. But are we rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic here, Jim? Is this going to keep happening? I mean, we because you are exactly right. This is an important way your membership dollars go to work. And I'm sure the chemical companies who sell these things also value our support of them. But more importantly, is this rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? Are we ultimately going to lose these kinds of products eventually? And I thought I heard you say earlier, the development of new innovation isn't anywhere soon. We're not going to find the resistance in these jugs, but we sort of still rely on the jugs. Are you worried that we might have an expiration date on a number of our products moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I'd go as far as to say there's an expiration date. I mean, Frank, I think re-reg is going to stay. I think scrutiny will continue. It's on the the research community, myself included, hand up to work together to to generate data to fill some of these knowledge gaps. I mean, if I think back to the oxidiazon situation, you know, one of the things that was kind of information that was brought forward from the turf research community of the EPA is that oxidiazon's watered in after application. Well, that's really important when you think about residue of the herbicide on leaf tissue and the potential for dislodgement and exposure onto a person. And to the EPA's credit, they were very open to receive that information and, and factor that into their decisions and in, in, in modeling. So it was by no means an adversary dialogue at all. It was very much an open exchange of information. And being a rookie, this was kind of my first time in the arena on this topic. It it was not a fight at all. It was a very open exchange of information and ideas. And I think it's on us to generate more information to be made available when those re-registration issues happen. That's right. And I think a couple of things. I'm in agreement with you. Personally, I think this is a healthy process. I, I love the idea of revisiting these things and and then getting people who can make an informed decision, right? And I think it's something to say about a regulatory agency that sometimes is considered hostile or antagonistic or assertive in some ways, being conciliatory and open to the information, I'm assuming is when you started talking about potential resistance issues that are going to come because the lack of alternatives, uh, the reliance uh, on this chemistry. Where did the 30% number come from, if you can tell me? And do you think that's going to be good enough for most guys to get by for the foreseeable future? 
Yeah, I don't know where the 30% number came from. I mean, I can speculate that they must have some model about total pounds on the ground and then getting to a place where we could have the right number. I can't speak in any detail to that because I honestly don't know. I think that that probably won't fit the majority of the country, uh, particularly golf courses in Florida, what have you, that are larger fairway footprint that are used to using it. But I also think that change can be good in forcing us to use some intellectual capital about how we're going to attack these problems rather than blanket spraying the herbicide we've always used, mm. that's a good thing. And I know superintendents that I work with that are really forward thinking on this mm. are already trying to explore alternative options, things that they can fit into similar application windows that touch on the same targets. How do you best make use of that 30% footprint and do it in a way that the same 30% doesn't get treated every single year? Right. I just think that's an opportunity for growth. And, I, and I'm, I'm very confident people can do it. Yeah. Something to be said for forcing actions, right, Jim? It seems like this whole area now is really being forced. Uh, I remember when you and I started talking all those years ago when I was doing the podcast, you know, through blog talk radio and who the heck knew what was going to happen when we recorded it. But now I wonder about, you know, when you said early on that nobody really gave their herbicide program a second thought. Right. You used to say, ah, they're taking care of the diseases, they're doing growth regulators, nutrient management, blah, blah, blah. And like seven or eight on the list is herbicide program. This sort of stuff, you've been really opening a lot of our eyes, you and the team in Resist Poe. And I think the weed science community has really been faced with a lot of forcing action, maybe more so than other pests. I know the neonicotinoids are forcing action here in New York. We may be banning them to some degree. And these sort of bans and restrictions really force that. I know we're in extension and we like education, but it's hard to argue when these things come down. They do sort of force us in some ways to adapt. And I love how you frame it. it you know, it forces our human capital to sort of intellectual capital to sort of come up with answers. I'm assuming as we wrap up here, you're hopeful. Yeah, no, I am. And I can tell you one of the reasons I'm hopeful is that there's a whole cohort of young superintendents and, and kids that are going through turf programs now. I mean, we're fortunate here at Tennessee. I think we have 45 students in the undergraduate turf program that, you know, if you've been using a given AI or, or say even, you know, we were talking about bent grasses earlier versus Bermuda grass. If you've been managing grass X forever, you have these really solidified impressions about what a grass can or cannot do or what is the right herbicide for a given target weed. And they're entrenched with years of experience. And there's a ton of value in that. And one of the things that I've noticed is that the younger generation that's making their way through and getting their feet underneath them in the industry now, there's just less experience there. So as this change is happening, they're kind of in the thick of it and maybe a little bit more open to evolving to uh, what the new reality might be because they haven't had the luxury of being entrenched with the old reality for a long time. That's exactly right. I think it's incredibly well said, Jim, and I really appreciate you sort of giving a lot of your time. I can tell you, for those that don't know, the amount involved in submitting some of these federal grants, I don't even want to think about the stack of paperwork that's associated with doing this in one university, never mind the many universities that you guys have done. Best of luck to you, Jim, in getting that grant and continuing to inform us and always appreciate you taking the time to chat with a New Yorker with as uh, rough as it's been on you guys lately. Awesome. Thanks. Well, hey, Frank, thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Dr. Jim Brosnan from the University of Tennessee. This is Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining us. Big thanks to my pal, Dr. Jim Brosnan. 
Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability. And Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Block Talk Radio, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.